The history of Star Wars is the history of cinema. For everything you like about Star Wars, there is at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on Episode Zero. And welcome back to episode zero, the Star Wars podcast where we don't really talk about Star Wars. Ah! My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I too am a critic. And uh, I am from the world of Barsoom. It's very it's very nice. Mm. It's not the heat that gets you. It's the lack of humidity. Uh, it's the sandworms and the spice that lives in the sands. <laughs> it's, the, uh, it's the crickets, actually. I don't know if you can hear this. It's very hot where we're recording right now. Uh, we had to open up some windows, and the crickets seem deafening to us. So if you hear crickets, uh, that's why. Yeah. They're not in your house. Here's a weird thing. Crickets love bad comedy shows. That's a little bit of a thing. No, no, right? I, I left some space there for crickets <laughs> like to join in because, yeah, yeah. God, you're terrible. Okay. I'm very funny. You just have you're, no sense of humor. No, I love you to pieces, yeah. and you're okay. And, Thank uh, you anyway. so much. Anyway, episode zero is back. Uh, This is the podcast where we look at the prehistory of Star Wars. For what is Star Wars, if not a pastiche of the many types of uh, films, stories, and particularly pulp stories that came before it. And if you look backwards at the history of film and popular culture, using Star Wars as your lens, you're going to pick up on a lot of really fascinating things, many of which have long since been dwarfed by the popularity of Star Wars. And that is the case this week, because we're about to talk about a film based on a story that inspired not just Star Wars, but almost, like, you can probably see the DNA of almost any sci-fi adventure story that followed, mm-hmm. at least in the 20th century. Like, you got everything from, you get Superman in here, definitely, and you sure yeah. as hell get Star Wars, and uh, you get that... Mo- most directly, you get Avatar, and we're going to talk about that. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, and you get it all from... John Carter. Who is that? Our world is under attack, John Carter. That don't look like a fair fight. And Earth is next. Will you stay? Fight for us. Get on. John Carter fights for us! Now, the clip we just played is from the movie adaptation of John Carter, which came out less than 10 years ago. It came out in 2012, and curiously, it's the only uh, big-budget theatrical release of uh, John Carter. Yeah, even though... Theatrical uh, adaptation. Even though the uh, stories and books written by Edgar Rice Burroughs, who also created Tarzan and wrote a lot of other pulp storylines, even though... Filmmakers had wanted to make John Carter stories for many, many decades. It never quite came together Mm. until long after Star Wars was popular and long after Superman was popular and long after everyone was so familiar Mm. with the pieces of John Carter that John Carter itself kind of stopped 
seeming unique. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and that was just one of the reasons why the film wasn't successful. It's also not a very good movie. It's it's just a big podgepodge. It's a mess. I, I like it more uh, than you, but it is not mm, an amazing motion picture. Yeah, that is definitely the case. I think uh, there's a lot of good in it, but and we'll talk about it in a lot of detail. But um, it definitely comes up a little mm. short compared to some of the many sci-fi masterpieces that it inspired. And well, let's talk a little um, bit about where it comes from, I well, think. Well, Edgar Rice Burroughs was a writer of adventure novels. Uh, I, I'm not going to get into his you know detailed biography here, but he's best known for writing Tarzan. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, he's so well known that uh, Tarzan of California was named for him. Yep. Uh, th- that was a weird fact I, I learned along my travails. He got into writing kind of uh, late in life, and in fact, he got into it kind of cynically. Where he had tried a whole bunch of other a whole bunch of business ventures and none of them took off. And then he started reading these pulp serial magazines. And he was like, These suck. I can do better than that. And I don't even have to try. So he just started writing mm. sci-fi stories, thinking this would be a way to make money, because apparently they'll take anything. And it turned out he was actually rather good at it. And he ended up creating a series of characters and stories that became highly influential, starting with mm. uh, the initial stories that would become uh, John Carter of Mars, and they were originally collected in a book that was called Princess of Mars, uh, which because, is what this movie was originally supposed to be called. Uh, in fact, I, I just learned right before we started re, re, uh, started recording that the Asylum, that famous uh, ha- ripoff house, or mm-hmm. the, the ones that try to beat blockbusters to the punch... It's called Mockbusters. Mockbuster. They would make... A f- the Asylum, they've made a, a whole series of movies uh, using this mold... They would see what was coming out in theaters soon, and because they worked so quickly and so cheaply, they just throw something together that was really, really similar. Yeah. Often using a very similar title. Yeah. And uh, and try to slip it into video stores at around the same time, hoping to hoodwink audiences into thinking they were getting one thing when they weren't, or they were maybe so hyped up on this new blockbuster that they take something really similar to sort of slake their thirst. And when I was working at video stores, I saw this work. Yeah, I saw people actually saying like, "Hey, can I get this movie?" And I'm like, "That's still in theaters." Like, "No, I've seen it." And then I found out they were talking about the Mockbuster. Mm. Uh, one example you might find is uh, when Thor came out, Asylum put out Almighty Thor because Thor is not copywritten. Thor, Thor is, is public just, domain. Yeah, Thor is just the name of a deity. You can tell any story you want with Thor as long as it doesn't look too much like the Marvel version. Your aces, and so mm. they just did this version where Thor, like much like the Marvel movie, they cut corners. Thor comes to Earth. Mm-hmm. I think Richard Grieco played Loki, and he was just kind of wandering around the city streets going, eh. and that's a lot of the film. <laughs> Richard Grieco. <laughs> and yeah, they, they did a John Carter of Mars, which as far as I know is the first feature film based on John Carter, based on Princess of Mars, which was originally published in 1917. Uh, I, can, I can kind of see why no one ever wanted to go to specifically the John Carter story, because it's really elaborate. Mm-hmm. And it would actually take 2012-level special effects to realize the world yeah. that Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote. There was an original intention where there was uh, there was talk, so I understand, of them maybe doing like a serialized version a la Flash Gordon mm. uh, in the 30s, which would, of course, have been very low budget, and that would have been really interesting, and I would love to have seen that, but to do it properly... Yeah, the visual effects were just not there for a really, really long time. That didn't stop a lot of filmmakers from trying, but Mm. none of them succeeded until it was uh, Andrew Stanton. Because uh, the conceit of John Carter is that uh, John Carter himself is a a Civil War veteran, Mm. uh, a a Confederate veteran, who has lost all... uh, 
all hope in humanity. He's just yeah. been completely disillusioned. He lost by the, war, the war. He lost his he wife lost his and wife. child. Yeah, and he, and, and uh, he no longer believes. It's not that he's like lost faith in his cause, if mm. he ever had a cause. What he's done is he just thinks humanity is nothing but like war and then periods of time between wars, and he's tired of humanity. Mm. He thinks war is stupid. He hated being a part of it, and he doesn't want to fight anymore. He's so a, he's now a conscientious objector. He's, he's a Hobbesian, and yeah. uh, he he staggers into a cave where he uh, stumbles upon a, a Martian widget that telegraphs him bodily. Yeah, so he thinks uh, to the planet Mars, and uh, th- this is not sort of the the barren wasteland of Mars. This is. Uh, fully realized Mars where uh, you can breathe the air and there's a bunch of different species living there and warring for control of the planet. Yeah, and uh, unlike and uh, because the people of Mars don't speak English and they have their own names for things, Mars is actually called Barsoom mm. and Earth is called Jasum. This isn't particularly relevant, but I do think it's significant because this is already this early on kind of sci-fi canon world building. Uh, which I think is significant, and it's a kind of detail mm. that I think led a lot of people to want to add more details like that to future sci-fi stories. And of course, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs didn't invent sci-fi. Oh, Obviously, no, no one's pretending that. No, but that, that uh, he, did, Shelley. <laughs> he did. He did kind of. He did codify a lot yeah. of the pulp storytelling uh, archetypes that became successful, and a lot of those are, of course, based on other traditions. Um, you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs. Uh, was obviously inspired by the events of the Civil War, which was a recent memory Mm. at the time when he was alive and writing these stories. Um, He was interested in tales of the Old West, and uh, he was interested in tales of colonialism, because a lot of his stories are about white people, in the case of Tarzan, a British child, and in the case of John Carter, an American soldier, uh, traveling to another land and then basically through the sheer force of their unbridled macho awesomeness kind of wreck the joint. The yeah, yeah, become Lord of the Apes, become Lord mm. of Mars, and there is a definite colonialist fantasy there where like I know uh, you got a lot of problems here. Luckily there's one white guy, so now everything's gonna work yeah, out. Th- these are definitely pro colonialist stories. Uh Tarzan has always been uh, there's a, a wonderful uh, speech in a Spike Lee movie about how a young, yeah. a young uh, black Klansman, black yeah, and black Klansman, a young uh, black boy went to go see the Tarzan movies and found himself rooting for Tarzan, killing the African natives. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until many years later that you realized how insidious that kind of white supremacy was because it was folded into these like young boys adventure movies. Yeah. Black Klansman is not just a great film. It's also a great work of criticism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's an amazing movie. Black Klansman, I mean, I, I wasn't, like, on the fence or anything, but Black Klansman finally pushed over the last domino on uh, Birth of a Nation for me. It's like, mm-hmm. we're done. We're done with Birth yeah, of a Nation. Yeah, there's, no, there's to... no value. There's nothing worth clinging to yeah, whatsoever. We, we, we don't need to pretend like this is for, some sort of, like, really important piece of American cinema so that we long, want to study. For so it's, long, yeah. we were sold this lie that that was the most important piece of, like, early American cinema. Yeah, and that, that just, that's, frankly, just... You look at the history, it's actually just not true. That's, no, yeah, it's not true. It's just lazy history. They just picked one movie and said, that's it. I'm like, uh, that's actually not. But okay. 
Um, so, Egg Rice Bros was working within a lot of contemporary traditions, and a lot mm. of those adventure traditions were very colonialist in their mm. uh, speaking. And of course, so is Star Wars in a lot of ways, in the way that it treats uh, different alien cultures in very broad, sweeping terms, and the way that the, the heroes are, are white males. Yeah, the yeah. heroes are, are, are and, and Leia as well, but the heroes mm. are mostly white, and yeah. there's something that is, I don't think there's anything terribly conscious about the way that George Lucas does that, but I also don't think there's any questioning of it. No, no, and, and we, we talked about sort of the, the weird colonialist underpinnings of Star Wars in the past mm -hmm. in, in a, a few of our older... Because how they draw very directly on a lot of these boys' adventure serials that also came from Edgar Rice Burroughs. So yeah. we're just taking another step back um, and learning that, yeah, it's definitely colonialist because yeah. Edgar Rice Burroughs just wrote in that mold. Uh I don't know where the idea of like sort of adventures on Mars began in earnest because mm. this was 1917 that this book came out and I mean, I, War of the Worlds read... they were from Mars yeah that that had already been a book that had been established. when was that 1890 that was in the 1890s I think yeah I, I don't have the date in front of me mm. so the idea of Mars and honestly there was a time when people thought genuinely believed scientists mm. believed that it is actually plausible. That there was life on Mars. And there was like, through telescopes, we could see things that looks like canals. Mm. Uh, if you watch, it's a really interesting movie. I, I like it a lot. Uh, it's called Robinson Crusoe on Mars. Which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a bunch mm. of astronauts. One of them is played by Adam West. Uh, they land on Mars, or they crash land on Mars, and then one guy has to make a go of it. It's very much like that movie The Martian, but it was made in like the late 50s, early 1960s. Mm. I apologize, it was 98. 1898. Okay, the 1890s yeah. regardless. Um... But Robinson Crusoe on Mars is about a guy trying to survive on Mars, and the movie was advertised, and they made an honest effort to make it as scientifically accurate as they could at the time. Which is why you'll notice there isn't a lot of water, and the air is only somewhat breathable. <laughs> this, of well, course, has been yeah. completely debunked, but at the time, this is what people were going with. This actually seemed plausible, mm. and of course, now we know better because we've actually sent probes up there, and we actually know what the atmosphere is like, and there's we have better telescopes, and mm. we can get a better look at things. The so that all all is gone. But the myth of Mars as this kind of place we could go to and conquer. Mm dates back a long time. And uh, there is one scientific conceit that Edgar Rice Burroughs latched onto, uh, and even though it was just sort of an, an excuse to give his protagonist superpowers, yeah. but uh, the gravity on Mars is less than that of Earth. Yeah, it's not as so large a if, planet, so if it's you have less, yeah, less pull. Muscle, uh, muscles and a physique that was developed on Earth that if you were to walk on Mars, you would be a lot lighter and you'd be able to use your powerful Earth muscles to leap great distances as John Carter does. Yeah. And that gives him sort of an edge in fighting fighting a, a gigantic war between essentially four warring factions. Yeah. Now, this idea of someone going to another planet and because they were born on a different planet, they have abilities that far exceed the native inhabitants is something that would be simply reversed to create Superman. And yeah. indeed, you know, Superman comes from Krypton, but when he comes to Earth, and here they justify it's because of the radiation of the sun, but mm. it, basically it's the same thing. He just, he's super strong now. And initially, you may recall, Superman couldn't fly. He could just leap. 
And yeah. that's what John Carter does. John Carter leaps, and I will say this, one of the things I love in the movie is that they make John Carter John Carter bounding across the mm. plains of Mars. They do make it look suitably just giant and cinematic and yeah, kind of beautiful. It's, and, it's one of the better scenes in the movie, yeah, where he just sort of discovers that he can leap really far and get kind of get used to the gravity. Yeah. Uh so he goes to Mars. He doesn't know how he got there. It's actually kind of elaborate how he got there, but he basically there was an alien who was on Earth for some reason, and mm-hmm. he surprised him, and he killed him, and he accidentally took his magical talisman that teleports him to Mars. And he gets to Mars. He is immediately found by a race called Tharks, and Tharks are giant green uh, uh, people with big tusks and four uh, different arms. Hmm. And uh, he is brought in by the leader of the Tharks, Tars Tarkas, played by the great Willem Dafoe. Who's really and, fun uh, yeah. at this. And he gets to speak alien. Look, Willem Dafoe is one of the greatest living actors, period. Yeah. There's there's no two ways about it. Watch some of his later work with Abel Ferrara or any of his films, really. Yeah. Even the bad ones. You look at like Speed 2. Mm. He's giving it his all. Like he's <laughs> going for it in that movie. I remember reading a review of Speed 2 and somebody asked, How do people like Dennis Hopper and Willem Dafoe get passports? Because like <laughs> Because they're, they're always playing, like, heavies and terrorists and stuff. Yeah. They look so sinister. Yeah. Um, but uh, he, is, he is taken in by uh, this this sort of warlike uh, uh, group of aliens. Uh, they're actually, I think they're, they're mostly modeled off of the Spartans. They've talked a lot about uh, weakness and how, like, you know, the weaker children will just get culled from their herds. And yeah, the he's raised people, to be one people of People have, have children, but they're taught to not have parents. They're just sort of raised by the village. Yeah. That's, a, that's a conceit. And, uh, they he's, brand each other as punishment. And he's given a, a, a drink that is called the Voice of Barsoom, which finally allows him to be able to understand what people are talking about. So the wa- It's the water of life. Yes. Uh, the culled from the Shai Halud, the sandworms that live in the mm-hmm. sands of Barsoom. Uh, uh, it's the oh, universal Arrakis. translator from Star Trek, okay? It's it's the MacGuffin that gets us over the extensively long period it would take for the protagonist of your sci-fi story to speak every language. Mm. In Star Wars, they just don't talk about it. Yeah. There's just is. like this one language everyone pretty much agrees to speak, but well, there's and, also ancillary languages people learn as well. Well, and, and if somebody speaks an alien language, people respond in English. So it's yeah. like, oh, people are just fluent in everything. Well, and there's your colonialism mm-hmm. right there because, um, yeah, everyone speaks English. Uh-huh. If you speak anything else, that's fine, but we all default to mm-hmm. English, right? There was an old, I'm trying to remember well, who like, said this joke. The idea was the international language is English loud and slow. <laughs> I want a beer, which is just every American like well, abroad just thinking yeah. if I speak English slowly enough, they'll get it. It, it was really bizarre uh, when they made uh, Solo, the Han mm. Solo origin story movie, because it's like, oh, and we're going to tell the story of how he first met Chewbacca and why they're such close friends. And it turns out Chewbacca was like a pit monster. He wasn't was like, a pit monster. He was like a prisoner of war who was yeah. kept in a pit. And, and But they were uh, they put him in the pit with Chewbacca because Chewbacca was going to eat him, right? That was what they thought would happen, yeah. but they were just assholes. But it, it turns out <laughs> Han Solo was able to talk his way out of it because he speaks the Wookiee language. Yeah. But throughout the Star Wars movies, that was never an issue. They just sort of banter in each other's native languages. And the Wookiee language is like this dog growling sound. <laughs> kind of like that. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you just waddle your user. <laughs> what are you talking about? Nothing. No, just that making... one goes there. That one goes there. I just would love a scene. <laughs> Sorry, Han. I've just been. I finally cleared that hairball. Now. Yeah. 
It turns out that the inverted fraculator, like, he's actually very eloquent. So this young Mm. man is uh, brought into a warlike situation, and he has to uh, rescue a princess... Uh, who, of course, is actually a total badass and is trying to save the planet all by herself. Shades of Leia. She's also... She was written very explicitly as sort of uh, uh, a sex fantasy. In the original Uh, story, she was wearing literally nothing but jewelry. Yeah. Like, that's it. Like, she's essentially naked. Yeah, Yeah, which is a very... So you get... get, He he gets this badass warrior babe as as his prize. Right. In the Mm. movie, however, I will give Andrew Stanton a lot of credit for this and everyone else who made it. Uh, They made Deja Thoris fucking awesome. So her name is Deja Thoris. She's played by Lynn Collins, who I honestly think, like, this movie was supposed to be that movie that sent Taylor Kitsch, like, over the edge and made him a star. Mm -hmm. And the movie was not a major success, and as a result, it didn't do that. But the real tragedy is that it also should have made Lynn Collins a star, and she is phenomenal in this film. She she delivers... Some of the silliest dialogue with so much believability. Yeah. My father was going to marry me off. And you're like, oh, shit, that's bad. <laughs> it's like, uh, even though I've heard that line a hundred times. And that's, and that's something Carrie Fisher did as well, where mm-hmm. she actually, you look at her dialogue in Star Wars, it's actually not that great. But Carrie Fisher was such a fucking badass that she made <laughs> everything seem awesome, even when she's running around with like, you know, the the. The silly hairdo the, and the, the cinnamon robes. bun yeah, hairdo, yeah. which I think even she didn't care for, and it's like, yeah, she's just got such a strong personality. She she makes it work. And Lynn Collins is also an action hero in this movie. She has to be rescued, but it's not because she's helpless, but because she's stuck in an impossible situation. Yeah, and only John Carter and his ability to a have superpowers and b uh, raise an army of Tharks in order to save the day at the end. Only he can solve it. Not because she's incapable, but because this is mm-hmm. a tricky scenario. Uh, uh, on on my rewatch, I noticed that she also says like. Little funny things you might not notice. Um, what one of the bad guys in this movie is a shapeshifter. Yeah, they can a, sort of a like thern. Yeah, thern, and they can they can uh, hypnotize you and look like different people. Yeah. And the uh, leader of that uh, group is played by Mark Strong, who plays yeah. the bad guy in most movies. And he's and he's uh, has nothing to do with the Bene Gesserit. And uh, th- these are Dune terms, by the way. There's mm. a lot of Dune running through this. Dune is de- also definitely inspired by this, but Dune is sort of like the headier acid laced version of, yeah. of something like John Carter. But, uh, it, he briefly turns into Lynn Collins and takes Lynn Collins hostage. So there's two of them on the screen at the same time. And one Lynn Collins has a knife at the other Lynn Collins throat. And then, uh, John Carter gets the drop on the bad Lynn Collins and she runs away. And, uh, good Lynn Collins turns and says, stop me. I'm getting away. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even pick up yeah, on that. That's it's like this little line, but you know, it's because there's so much chaos. I mean, at that point in the movie, there's like eight stories well, and so many characters and that's that kind it's of, kind of hard to follow. That's one of the problems with the movie is that it's actually, and, and you know, one of the reasons why I think the story is kind of hard to adapt is that there's a lot of mythology, which, you know, for a long time in movies and TV wasn't something that a lot of sci-fi stories were really super eager to bring about because they thought it was hard to take seriously, and it often is. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, And, and it, it takes a lot of uh, powerful storytelling acumen to communicate a lot of that stuff without getting bogged down in exposition, yes, which Bog John Carter does. Well, and that's one of the tricks where, you know, John Carter is a story about a stranger in a strange land, someone who actually needs to have every single thing explained to him and as a result, the movie frequently has to stop to do that. In Star Wars, 
there's only a couple of things that the protagonists need to have explained to them. Mm. The audience might not know what's going on, but the protagonists understand that this is a spaceship. Mm. This is what's going on there. There's only like the only things we need to know are what is the force and what is a Death Star. That's basically well, it. And, and uh, but Star Wars is actually very canny about communicating a lot of its intentions visually. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a, a lot has been made of that very first shot of Star Wars after the big uh, t- text crawl. Mm-hmm. The first thing we see is a ship being fired upon by this big gigantic triangular wedge. It's like okay. And, you know, it's like a high angle and it kind of zooms in. And, and the like first ship seems out. really big. And then you see the second ship and you're like, oh, that's not big And, it, and it's oh, like yeah. really, really huge and it's angular and it's imposing. And you get all of that's communicated right away. There's a good guy being chased by a bad guy. Mm-hmm. So you don't need all of like the mythologies of as to what the Empire is. All yeah. you know is that they're p- big, powerful and bad. And that also helps that in Star Wars, there's really only two groups. There's mm. the Rebels. There's the Empire, mm. and then there's just this general like canvas of criminality where there are people who are doing stuff, but really there's only one good guys and one bad guys. Mm. One of the problems in John Carter is that there's actually a lot of guys. There's there's four <laughs> sides playing at this point. Yeah, so we've, so we've got uh, we've got uh, the Tharks who mm. are basically just kind of on the edge of it all, trying to stay out of it. They don't mm. they just want all of the humans to kill each other. Uh, there are they're the Fremen. They're also the Navi. Yeah, there mm. are. Uh, so there's basically there's two uh, clans of humans on Mars. They look human. Uh, one of them, one group wears a red cape and mm. one group wears a blue cape. And I love it at the end of this when everyone's fighting each other and the Tharks have decided to join the red cape people. Mm. Or sorry, is the it's cape? the red cape. The, blue, the, red the cape. blue capes are like the villains who are in the thrall of the witches. I, I think that's the case. But basically, mm. like they're about to kill like two of the good guys and they're just like, ah, look at our capes. And they're like, Fair enough. Salute. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a cute bit. It's one of the funnier moments in the movie. Um, So there are these two clans and they're at war. One of them is the Lynn Collins side and they are peaceful and they just want everything to be... The Heliumites. Yeah. And the other ones are are evil and they are led by Dominic West uh, from The Wire, Mm. perhaps most prominently. And he is being manipulated by the Thern... Uh, which are these sort of godlike kind of in- wizards, yeah. wizards who are influencing the political situation on Mars in order to make sure that Mars stays enmeshed in war so that they can be more easily manipulated in a sort of uh, menacing phantom sort of way. <laughs> if you will. Curious. Yeah. yeah. No, it's pretty It's pretty on the nose. Yeah, um, and, and but that... the problem is that John Carter has come to Mars and him and his superpowers are this big X factor that the Thern didn't plan on. And so he actually might be able to ruin all their plans. And so they have to kick everything into high gear. Mm. They arrange and, yeah, a, 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 an arranged marriage between Dominic West and Lynn Collins, which of course she tries to flee and he, he, she falls in love with John Carter and he's been thing. yeah he's been given a thern weapon that only he can control it's like a gun that manifests itself around his arm uh, Dominic West has Dominic West has yeah. uh, they each have like flying uh, these really cool spindly looking flying warships they that look, look like really dragonflies yeah. they look really like I dragonfly love the design catamaran looking things they look and awesome they also live on uh, something that would be borrowed for mortal engines a, a living walking city yeah an entire s- city on legs that tra- traverses the countryside. Yeah, it's really cool, actually. And I love a lot of the design uh, elements of this film. I think the Tharks look awesome. I love all the designs of the machinery. I actually you think the Tharks look awesome? I like the Tharks. I think they look neat. Yeah. I think they're good. And I think that they actually have some really strong actors playing the Tharks. You got, uh, you know, obviously, Willem Dafoe. You got Samantha Morton. And I think Thomas Hayden Church is in there. Yeah, here you go. And I think those are, they, they bring a lot of dignity. I believe in the Thark society. It's well thought out enough. Mm-hmm. 
that what? I don't like go like, oh, they're just a bunch of weird aliens. Like, no, no, no. I actually get, I actually accept their existence okay. as these CGI creations, and it, it I, works. I could have done without the tusks. Yeah, I like the tusks. <laughs> right. I'm fine with it. But, um,. In any case, uh, John Carter is initially just doesn't want any part of this, and he doesn't believe in war. He's tired of war. He will mm-hmm. only fight if it looks like someone is actually... He will fight if there's an underdog, you know, shades of uh, Rick from Casablanca. There but otherwise, is. he's trying to stay out of it, and only by uh, spending more time with Dejah Thoris and realizing that, you know, her entire people are oppressed and that the entire... Uh, that the warlike nature... Of people is actually not just innate, but it is actually being manipulated and exploited by a small group of powerful people. Because mm. he realized that, okay, I may be anti-war and I may hate that human beings are very, very warlike, but fuck those guys. <laughs> you know, just just these the the small group that actually benefits from yeah. it, the people on Canto Bite. Like that's the kind of people that he's ultimately is willing or, to go to war against. Uh, or there's also I was reminded uh, not just because I think Len Collins should have played Wonder Woman because She'd have been amazing she would have been Wonder a great Woman. Wonder Woman. I like Gal Gadot a lot, but Len Collins is, yeah. would have been amazing. Too. I like Gal Gadot. Okay, uh, I, I think she's actually best in this is heresy to some people, but she's best in Justice League. I think she has yeah. as a, she's good in Justice League. as a character. I think she has more to work with in in a film like Justice League. How, whatever a mess I, that movie I was. I prefer Wonder Woman, but yeah. fair enough. I can appreciate that. Uh, but uh, one of the conceits of the Wonder Woman feature film was that she was trying to find the thing that caused war and destroy it. Mm. And and in the movie, it manifests as Ares, the god of war, and mm. it was going to in this really interesting place when it looked like there was going to be no Ares, no god of war. It turns yeah. out people were just dicks. But then they kind of. At the last minute, they doubled back on it, kind of undoing a lot of the interesting parts of the movie. I don't mind that going on to Wonder Woman, I don't mind that in a movie steeped in Greek mythology, that the God of War was real. And I really don't mind that the God of War is real and that his whole thing was he didn't actually cause war, he just stoked it a little bit in order to sort of, you know, do whatever he was doing. What I hate is that it devolved into a dumb CGI throwing energy at each other battle. Yeah, yeah. Which The one thing about that movie that I think stinks. It's like the worst climax. Yeah. Uh, Everything about that movie, I think, is fantastic, but the climax is kind of a light. That in the first credit was Steven Mnuchin. That was kind of a buzzkill. Right, Um, weird. But, uh, yeah, this idea that there's this, these warlike beings that essentially Wonder Woman has to take down in order to stop war. It wasn't that the two tribes hated each other that much. It's that they were these evil phantom witches that were manipulating everything from the shadows. Yeah, and we can... And I I was reminded of that. And we've seen that. We've seen warmongers... Mm. In in real life, throughout like all of human history, we're like, oh, there's no war over there. Well, we'll start one uh. because we'll make money because there's an opportunity to exploit this for the gain of our country, our business. Whoa. That's a thing that actually happens, and John Carter at the very least touches upon that a little bit. Um, and uh, so yeah, John Carter uh, fights a bunch of people. There's a lot of individual little elements here. That I think are very distinctly uh, cribbed for Star Wars. Most notably, there's a sequence towards the end of the film where John Carter is chained to a rock in a gladiator arena where he has to fight giant monsters, which is just Attack of the Clones. (laughs) It's just that sequence from Attack of the Clones, which is... And it kicks ass. It's a cool gladiator fight with giant monsters. (laughs) I'm fine with all of that. I like all of that. I actually like a lot of Andrew Stanton's... um, like just general storytelling yeah. here. I think yeah. Michael Giacchino has a very nice sweeping yeah. score. I, I like the overall uh, feel of it, the heroic 
bounding energy of the film. Um, I like the overall look, even though obviously because it's all set on a desert planet, it's a little stark. Yeah, there's there's not a, a huge amount of visual variety, which is a little upsetting. Yeah, and I think that's something uh, that Star Wars wisely realized that we need visual variety. In fact, I mean, did, every, didn't George Lucas have some sort of mandate that mm-hmm. every one of the films needed to have at least like three different planetary settings? Yeah, at least three. I don't know if this is a rule or not, but it does seem to be something they followed. At least three distinct environments. Mm. So that, and it makes you feel like you've been somewhere. It makes yeah. you feel like you've actually like traveled around and gone through this big travel well, it's also adventure just, and more basically it's just a rest on the eyeballs yeah. you know just some visual variety is I, nice. I agree and I think that's something John Carter is lacking the thing but, however that uh, I, I think sorry go ahead Andrew Stanton but you mentioned his name uh, was yeah. previously he's this is his only live action film so far uh, to date uh, he's directed uh, several well regarded uh, Pixar films as well mm-hmm. or co-directed uh, he did uh, uh, Finding Nemo Finding mm-hmm. Dory and Wally. Yeah. He also co-wrote all of the Toy Story movies and Monsters Incorporated. Yeah, so he's he's one of the muckety mucks over at Pixar, and Pixar is known for its emotional clarity yeah. and its storytelling efficiency. Yeah, those films are really well written movies, and because they they have these really long production mm-hmm. cycles, and they spend most of that time just making sure the story works. Which is so it's curious that when he sets out to make a, you know a live action sci fi epic with you know a lot of CGI in it that the story would be so splayed. It's yeah. just not focused at all. That's a big problem. Mm-hmm. I actually think that's one of the... Because I think the greatest sin John Carter, the movie, committed was only being, like, three stars. Yeah. Like, it never really... Co- there are moments of greatness. There are moments of that, wow, that's a really cool action sequence, or, wow, Lynn Collins mm-hmm. is amazing, or, but oh, it, that it, looks pretty cool. But it, It's not so grand that it could warrant its ginormous budget. And it's I, hugely expensive. And I think one of the problems is that there is a distinct lack of an emotional through line, I think, for the hero and also for the villain. I think Dejah Thoris is very... Uh, focused, Mm. very motivated. She's very strong. Every time she's driving the action, the movie soars. When John Carter is driving the action, the problem is John Carter doesn't want anything for most of the movie. John Carter wants to stay out of trouble and find... He's he's a prospector at the beginning of the film. He wants to find a cave of gold, Mm. and then he teleported away from it, and now he wants to get back to that cave of gold. And so his whole thing is, and not in like a cool kind of Han Solo kind of way... He's just kind of trying not to get involved, and that's not a lot to like hang a giant adventure on. You want someone who really wants to get out there. Luke Skywalker wants to get out there. Rey wants mm. to get out there. Anakin Skywalker wants to get out there. They want to live their lives and have grand adventure, and I appreciate not wanting to go to war. That's fine, but he doesn't want to do shit, mm. and that's not a great it, motivating it, force. And the other problem is that the villain, there are two villains here. There's Mark Strong, who's eventually has a speech explaining what they're doing, and that's kind of evil, and I'm fine with it. But the main villain is played by Dominic West, a really good actor, actually. Mm. He's a really boring villain. He's, he's just gen, he's just a, an evil general. Like, he doesn't want mm. anything super specific. He doesn't have anything super specific about him. Like, if you look at the original Star Wars... Darth Vader doesn't want anything specific either, but he's distinct. He has a very specific presence. No one else in the well, movie also, is like him. He's, he's separate from the rest of the villains. Yeah. Like, he he's, wears this weird mask, and you never see his face. And yeah. he, he's 
you know, this mysterious dark wizard who has psychic powers. And, exactly. you know, and people even make fun of him because he's kind of an outsider, even on the side of the Empire. Yeah, he, he seems like a relic of a bygone era. And I, 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 and I've, I've complained about this before. When they turned him into, in The Empire Strikes Back, into like the Emperor's right-hand man and gave him way more power, that made him less interesting to me. I liked when he was a little bit more of a rogue agent who didn't need the Empire. I, I appreciate that, but at the same time, at some point, you just have to get over that shit. I, I know the movie came out in 1980, and uh, yeah. it's, it's just sort of flooded the consciousness at this point. And yeah, yes, he is Luke's father, but... For a minute, like in between those two <laughs> movies, you realize, wait a minute, there's so much I more would, possibilities with Darth Vader. I would love, I would love as like some sort of experiment to show someone who hasn't seen Star Wars yet. They have to be young. Uh-huh. Like you have someone who hasn't seen Star Wars yet, show them the original Star Wars and then ask them to come up with what would happen next. Don't show go. them anything yeah, else. Yeah. Don't tell them, don't show them the Clone Wars. Don't show them a damn thing. You get the first movie, which is all people had for a long time. Yeah. And like, yeah, you had the toys and maybe some of the comics, but like that was it. And what happens next? There's no inclination that Darth Vader is Luke's father. No, not really. It, you'd have to really. In fact, he's he's very. To come up with that theory, de- you'd have to really stretch. He's really definitively not, according to dialogue in the first yeah, Star Wars. Clearly movie. stated dialogue, and so I do think it's interesting to go back and look at that earlier time. And apparently, you know, on some some part of Lucas thought that was the case, but you know, if we never made another movie, he never would have been. And so. Who the hell knows? But this is the world that we live in right now. Yeah. And But regardless, Darth Vader was distinctly presented. He was very powerful in a way that was very intimidating. Mm. And even later on when they codified that he was Luke's father, which I think after Darth Vader did it, the idea that the villain is the hero's father became kind of a cliche and mm. often felt kind of tacked on and un- unearned. Uh, but in, Dar- in Star Wars, they made it work. Um we don't have anything like that with the bad guys, any yeah. of the bad guys in this movie. And as a result, Dominic West, you know, he's trying to be evil, but he's also easily manipulated by the Thern. You could have done something with that where that made him like kind of dangerous. He's kind of like dangerous and dumb, you know, like <laughs> yeah. you never know what he's going to do. Coriolanus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that could be something. Or even looking like, look at like how Kylo Ren is presented in The Force Awakens and how he's incredibly intimidating. He's obviously a Sith Lord. He's very, very dangerous. However, if you piss him off, he will go completely nuts and destroy a computer console right in front of everybody. And everyone just kind of has to be like, uh, sure thing, we'll fix that. Why do we fix that? Can we get someone over to fix that for uh, Mr. Ren? Like, that's the thing. He's He felt like an X-Factor. He felt like an immature Darth Vader. And there's something about that that was distinct. Mm. Kind of interesting. And mm. we just don't get that here. And I think the fact that the hero isn't that strong and the villain isn't that strong means all of the other genuinely cool stuff in this movie never quite lands. Never quite gels. Yeah, yeah there's, there's too, something to too hang many on. Has, too many elements at play. And, uh, and yeah, I think it did suffer from that syndrome of having to outdo itself. Uh, So many things like Star Wars had taken so many cues from John Carter Mm -hmm. and uh, repeated them ad infinitum that when you go back to the original, it doesn't sound novel. In fact, it sounds like it's knocking off the things that came after it. And this happened to a lot of things in the wake of Star Wars. Like they did a Flash Gordon movie Mm -hmm. and it just didn't stand up to Star Wars. I I love that Flash Gordon movie. That movie's amazing, but it's also really campy and that's fine. That's That's what what I love about it. That's what they were going for, but it's not what people love about Star Wars and I had trouble finding an audience and more recently a couple years ago we had a film called Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets 
Mm -hmm. uh, which was actually a a French comic book that uh, George Lucas was familiar with. Yeah. And we're not going to cover that because it's kind of similar to John Carter. It's like another pulp story. And Mm. it's also led to a movie after Star Wars that got kind of overlooked because it was too much like Star Wars. But even though Valerian actually isn't that much like it's really like, not th- th- that movie especially is not that much like, like Star Wars. Like, like there's a lot of bad things to be said about the filmmaker but no, Valerian the, the, the is a fil- visual the fil- feast the filmmaker is a, uh, is a creep yes the, the film he made I don't want to ruin your day by yeah. going into detail but like at the very least the movie is a visual feast uh. like there's a lot of really unique action sequences that you've never seen anything mm. before and the opening prologue to it is actually kind of like fil- amazing film by, uh, like filmmaking par excellence yeah so there's there's a lot of really interesting stuff in that movie but again when people like i remember seeing trailers for stuff like that with audiences like big packed theaters and people would get really excited because they would see something that looked kind of visually fascinating like a trailer for valerian or a trailer for that really awful remake of ghost in the shell um mm. And I would well, hear which people had, had great visuals saying yeah, anything you no, like. No, imp- Not a good film, but a good visual. Impressively presented visually, that is true. But you can say that for a lot of movies that mm. aren't very good. Um, some of them Star Wars, but uh, the 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 audience would perk up. And they would go, ooh, is this the new Star Wars? And then when they would see that the title wasn't Star Wars, you can mm. see them immediately reject it. Like yeah, the air got it, let out of the room. It's like they're which is weird. They're not willing to accept a big elaborate. It, it's almost I don't like know about willing. I don't want to put like words in their mouth. Maybe like that, not. But there's just this. It just this seems idea like Star that, Wars makes it safe, and if it's not Star Wars, mm. it's a risk. Well, I there was this. Uh, audiences were trained uh, to accept uh, existing IP as the ultimate way of telling a story. Yeah, you have to be. You have to be able to get in on something, and mm-hmm. I, I don't know where that. Start, I guess people people like what they like, and if it's, they already like it, they, it's not a risk. To, it's not to give just a familiarity. It was a, a trend that the studios started to bank on, and I think it started maybe with Harry Potter, uh, Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. Mm. Uh, but the, some, a lot really changed when those two movies came out because a lot of the Harry Potter audience w- was built in. So yeah. and uh, they the actually idea... turned out because buying existing intellectual properties. Mm. Goes back real far. Oh, it goes back to the dawn of cinema. Yeah, but, but like all of a sudden, people who are like, "Oh, we're a huge fan of the book. The book is a bestseller," and yeah, they're about, really turning out for these movies. Yeah, it's about trying to tap into a, an established, frothy, well-moneyed fandom. Yeah, and turn it. Yeah, and turning that into a film and getting those same people to spend money on the same product again, essentially, and uh, that became such a successful model that uh, I think audiences started to be trained to uh, only accept bigger films if it was something that they were already in on or could get in on but there was something already underlying there were john carter novels which Mm. is weird because there were valerian comics yeah like ghost in the shell was an existing anime franchise and i think uh, one of the reasons that ghost in the shell movie tanked the way it did is because uh the people who were already in on ghost in the shell didn't like the changes they made oh there were some absolutely terrible and frankly offensive changes made to the material Mm. So there's a there's a yeah, great so, reason so, for that one. Yeah, that so, one that one they just did not get it. Yeah, so, at all. And and that's why a lot of people like really bristle when a live action film of something is made and it, it differs too much from the source material. You've gone on about uh, the Last Airbender a lot. Yeah, how much that differs from the TV show. Uh, the movie. I, yeah. I, I think the movie's uh, biggest sins are that it's badly made. Uh, I don't know. Oh about, yeah, I mean, I, listen, if, I would be ba- really, it's bad whether tr- or not you're familiar with if, the source if material. If it were changed, but it was still good, mm. I would be able to say, well, I'm disappointed that they changed mm. some of the things I liked about the original story. 
story, but okay. it is still but, good. And I've said that about yeah. a lot of different movies. But the idea of trying to get people out in droves with that kind of frothing excitement mm. for something that, uh, even though they're based on previous properties, looks like essentially a studio is uh, coming up with on their own. Yeah. Almost seems like, like, how dare they? How dare they try to get my interest with something that I, you know I'm not already in on? Well, there's also just a novelty the factor that gets that lost. that you can like, grab me with something that I don't already know. Well, but, uh, but there is also just a novelty factor that can be lost as well. Mm. Like, when the first... Well, there was, a, there was a Fantastic Four movie that Roger Corman produced in the 90s mm. that was never officially released. It was never supposed to be officially released. It was only, it was only to get yeah. retain the legal rights. They had, and... they, had the, they had the rights to make a Fantastic Four movie, but they were going to lose those rights unless they made one. But they didn't have the time to make a good one, so they decided to make a really fast, cheap, and crappy version. Uh, the story I heard was that they literally hired the first actors who auditioned for each role. Like, that was it. Doesn't matter. You're in. Good. You were first in line. Congratulations. Good job getting up this morning. The, like the, the actor who played Doctor Doom is good in that movie. Actually, I'll just say that. I would actually just, argue he's arguably the best Doctor Doom we've had oh, in the I'll, movies. I'll say this. Uh, of I've seen uh, four Fantastic Four feature films. Yeah. And that first one, that cheap one that they made for $50, gets the tone of the comics most accurately. I 100% mm. agree. Is it a good movie? No. But there, it feels the most <laughs> like Fantastic Four. It's, it's just as watchable as some of the other ones. And that's kind of what I'm getting at here, is that there's actually, like, uh, there are all these adaptational things you can do, but the further away you move from the spirit of the thing, you can create problems. And that's something that, you know, I think it's interesting when we see that happening in a franchise that is inventing itself, as opposed to adapting something. Because mm. if you're adapting something and they change something mm. and you don't like the change because you liked the there's something about the, the original was, yeah. that you thought worked and really connected with you and now it no longer connects with you, that sucks. However. Well, for you. Well, true. Mm. Granted. But you're, you're entitled to that opinion, of course. That's a perfectly mm. rational opinion. I liked this thing this way for X, Y, and Z reasons. And if you change it and didn't replace X, Y, and Z with something mm. equal or better... I don't connect to it anymore. That's a that's a perfectly valid criticism. I, I say that about Star Trek every day. There you go. And I think some people are are having problems with some of the other Star Wars movies because they see elements of the films are changing or evolving, or they might argue devolving away from the things that they thought made Star Wars. But the thing that I think is interesting is that those are progressive chapters in a original story. Mm. It's not an adaptation where we're adapting something and we screwed up the adaptation according to this group of fans. It's we're literally in the process of telling this new story. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean that every chapter is going to be cool. That doesn't mean every chapter is going to be good, but it, it, I, feel, I guess what I mean is that it feels like star Wars is constantly evolving and some people don't want it to. Mm. And it's not always going to evolve in the right direction. Sometimes there will be bad movies. Sometimes yeah. there will be bad TV shows or comics or whatever. Yeah. But yeah. I want it to be able to evolve. Because if not, it's just going to be stagnant. And then one well, day, Star Wars it. is going to be John Carter. This thing that like stayed stagnant. And then we all moved on past it. And it won't ha feel relevant anymore. Even yeah. though, on some level, it's still cool. Well, I, I, my main complaint about uh, Star Wars is that it has stagnated, is yeah. that it's not evolving. It, it keeps revolving around the same characters and the same events rather than exploring this world, which is so tantalizing. Yeah. We see all these creatures and all these people living out on the fringe, and we never go out there and tell stories out there in that part of the universe. Well, it's just one of the reasons uh, why like, I think The Last yeah. Jedi was actually arguably yeah, the best film new because it felt like it was yeah. going in different directions and taking like, us to new places. It's my second favorite Star Wars movie yeah. after Star Wars. It's my third, uh, but it's right yeah. up there, yeah. 
Uh, yeah, because it actually is exploring things that hadn't been discussed previously for the first goddamn time in yeah. literally decades. And it's not, and it's not like, and I've heard some people argue that like one of the reasons why Last Jedi and mm. doesn't really feel like a Star Wars movie to some people is because it doesn't feel like it's inspired by the exact same things that inspired George Lucas. And that's fair. That's actually apt. I, yeah. I think that's true. However, I don't give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, here, here's the a, things that inspire it, it's always been a pastiche and it's been a pastiche as we've seen yeah. on this podcast of a wide variety of yeah. influences. And if George Lucas made it for the first time now, there would be other shit in there. Here, curiously, I think if the 2012 John Carter film had pared itself down to look a little bit more like star Wars, it would have been more, a more successful movie. Perhaps. Uh, I think, uh, Star Wars feels very lived in and very... um... Well, it feels lived in. It's also very simple. It's, you know, we were talking about how so many simple things are communicated uh, visually and how there's just not a lot of fat in those movies. There's good guys and there's bad guys. Yeah. There's not a lot of moral complexity in Star Wars. Eventually. By by design. Eventually they get there. But yeah, there's a little bit bit in the prequel. Uh, There's more in the prequel trilogies when they talk about sort of the rise of fascism mm, and sort of how the Jedi are sort of morally compromised. And then. Golly, I wish those films were written well. Uh, I know. because There's so much interesting stuff that they brush up on. Some interesting ideas that they could have actually explored. And then I think in The Last Jedi in particular, they raise some other Mm. stickier issues that they handle reasonably well. But you're right. For the most part, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, uh, since Star but yes, I think, uh, one of the issues with, uh, John Carter is that Star Wars kind of retained the right to that moral simplicity. Mm. And I think that's also why, you know, and I've talked about this a lot, how about why those Marvel movies are so, so popular and why comic book superheroes persist to this day after mm-hmm. decades and decades, uh, is because of that moral certainty. Yeah. There's good guys and there's bad guys and it's easy to track. Even though there's you know millions of characters now to follow, you all you're always going to know if they're you know on the good guys, the bad guys, the shirts of the skins. Yeah. Uh, John Carter is a little bit more complex than that. It's trying to tell like this big socio political war story, which a lot and, of yeah. people on every side aren't necessarily doing things right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, the the comparison I made at the time and one that I'm constantly reminded of when I watched it again was Dune, mm. because uh, Dune has two warring families. There's the Atreides and the Harkonnens. The Harkonnens are clearly bad guys, yeah. but the Atreides aren't like peerless good guys. They're just a, another family. Yeah. Then the, there's characters in the families that all have different varied viewpoints of the world, and some of them are good and bad even within House Atreides. Uh, and then we have, you know, the, the wizards who are sort of floating around outside of the families. Those are the Bene Gesserit witches. And then there's the natives who are uh, more in, more earthbound and are apart from the warring factions, but are actually going to be directly affected by their actions. And that's the Fremen yeah. in, in Dune. Uh, but like I said, Frank Herbert is clearly taking uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs and getting like blitz drunk and taking some acid and trying to turn it into like something a little bit headier and a little bit more psychedelic, uh, which I appreciate. I actually really like Dune. Uh, but Disney, unfortunately, was locked in on a very certain kind of filmmaking that they were trying to uh, repeat uh, the success of, and that yeah. is Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh they struck on a certain kind of uh, massive unexpected success with Pirates of the Caribbean. Mm. And they uh, decided that in order to repeat that success, we need to make films that are just as overwritten, bloated, and kind of sloppy as that movie. (laughs) 
People, like, I don't, they, know, they I don't really... know if that's specifically what they were doing in Junk. I think it's definitely what they well, were it's... doing with like Sorcerer's Apprentice and it's the what Lone they were, Ranger. They were doing with Sorcerer's sure. Apprentice. They were doing it with Lone Ranger, and that they were doing it with John Carter. These are all, these are all films that are. In I a feel line. like Andrew Stanton's approach to filmmaking is a little bit more classical than that, but the narrative that he's mm. working with has that bloat. It, I agree it feels with that. like, yeah. but it's, this is clearly a project they put into de- Disney, put into development clearly as a reaction to the success of Pirates of the Caribbean. Mm. You look at those Pirates of the Caribbean well, they, sequels, they're unbearable. They're, they're, they're really s- hard to follow they're, they're a lot cha- of the time. They're chaotic. They have there's, 800 plot lines. They're that fascinating all, uh, sometimes. There's amazing bits in there and some of the visual mm. effects are really amazing and like distinctively imagined yeah, and I really I, like parts and, of them. And but I they're still just never... really complicated to and, a point that's and, absurd. And, and I've seen the first, second, fourth, and fifth but I never saw the third one. Oh my god. So, uh, <laughs> god, it's so weird. Because I I didn't want to because yeah, <laughs> it's bloated and awful. By the time the fourth one came out, I was a professional, so I kind of had to. Um, the, the 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 production of John Carter became the narrative more than whether or not it's a good movie, and that's a tragedy for any movie. Mm. Really, it's a movie that costs a lot of money. Mm. That's that's a problem if you're not based on a like a a property that has a built-in audience, and you know in your deep heart of hearts that you're gonna at least make your money back. Mm. But there's maybe no, not a profit, but at least you'll make you will break even. There's no reason to believe that John Carton would, wouldn't have been a hit. Well, there's a lot of reasons. The same way Pirates of the Caribbean was. Well, there's a couple of, 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 of reasons why. Like Pirates of the Caribbean did have some rising stars that people were very excited about. Land of Bloom was in the Lord of the Rings movies. Um, then you you have Taylor Kitsch, who maybe? Lynn Collins, who maybe? Yeah, maybe yeah. And like a lot of the bigger actors are like in CGI, so... You're not really getting like a lot of like, ooh, Willem Dafoe. Like you're not really getting that off of the trailer. But, it's like but it's they're, a pro- also, they're also reacting to the success of Avatar, which True. used uh, you know CGI and motion capture in this revolutionary new way. And mm-hmm. those Navi, they're pretty impressive looking. Yeah, they're uh, cool looking. That, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a good design. Uh, they're, they're, Avatar they're tall was, and lanky, just like the, the Avatar was the Im- was immersive and floral. Yeah. And John Carter was, was dry actually and dry and arid. Yeah. And that's a, that's an issue as well. There, uh, I, I went to the press junket for this uh, before it came out. I was working mm. at a website and they had a big event where they, they screened the film and we a gloss, a glossary of terms. Yeah. No, they didn't do that, but they, they, they screened they, the film. At I got my to, screening, they gave me a glossary of terms. They gave me a little booklet. And John Carter, really? For John Carter. That's hilarious. I don't, explaining I, all the different characters and all the different factions. I don't think I got that. Factions. Yeah, I don't I mean, think I got that, but they might have done that after my screening. No. Um, everyone liked it fine at my no. screening. Everyone was like, that's okay. Um, but uh, uh, whatever, I got to interview somebody. I got to interview Willem Dafoe, who was, that was a really cool interview. It was a really fun person mm. who would like get up and start out acting scenes as he was talking about them which was really cool um but uh, i one of the cooler things was uh being at this big round table with andrew stanton and he mm. was talking pretty frankly about some of the issues that were surrounding the film and one of the things he talked about was how um the title you know they wanted to call it princess of mars yeah problem is that disney wanted to have more of an action-friendly franchise and they didn't want it to sound like a disney princess movie mm. so they, they said well so he was tra- like they were trying to get teenage boys rather than young girls yeah that was the demographic that disney mm. was concerned that they were losing now that the pirates of the caribbean movies were on their way out and they didn't really have a big franchise to replace it with yet and marvel and was still could, relatively new and, 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 and can, they didn't have star wars you can see how hard they worked for many like pre-purchase of marvel like in the early 2000s you mm. could see how hard disney was working to get a teenage boy audience yeah uh, and yeah, even there, it's like we're not going to do cell animation anymore. They moved straight into CGI. Mm-hmm. They fell 
went back to Princess and the Frog pretty fast after yeah. their like three CGI features tanked. Yeah, they were like, oh, we're gonna do this. Oh no, Ch- Chicken uh, Little, meet the, yeah, meet the Robinsons. Um, yeah, Chicken Little, yeah. No. Bolt. Yeah, Bolt will save us. They, they, they tried with Treasure Planet as well. A movie I still yeah. think is very underrated, but uh, yeah, was a I think, huge bomb. I think it's rated. I think now it's rated. I think now it's rated fine. I think mostly. it's it's rated just fine. It it, it, it has the reputation it deserves. I think it's a, I think it's a visual feast, yeah. and I think their Long John Silver is a really great creation. Um, but uh, they were talking about okay, so he was like, okay, well, we'll call it John Carter of Mars. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's evocative. That's the, name, then, of the name of the book series. And, and then apparently, uh, marketing came to him and said, um, yeah, we can't call it John Carter of Mars. And he's like, why? Well, Mars movies don't sell. We're making a Mars movie. Uh, and they're like, yeah, it's well, set on Mars. Yeah, what, what, what can we do about that? I said, we'll just call it John Carter. And it's like, that's a bland title. Mm. And they're like, well, we, we like, think like, it'll work. And then the, they mix start. Mix it up with Michael Clayton, you know? And then they start, like, and yeah, John Carter's a boring title for a movie. It's just the, a generic name. Mm. Like, you can get away with it with Michael Clayton because, like, it's a, it's a low budget, like, legal type thriller. Uh-huh. But, like, this is a giant movie. You want to get people excited about that shit. A name matters. So that's an issue. And so. Andrew Stanton, it was like, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll call it John Carter, but the title card at the end of the film will be John Carter of Mars, because at the end of the film, he embraces Mars as his new home. Narratively, it makes sense. It doesn't help the production or the, the marketing at all. But then what happened, and this is hilarious, what happened was... Uh, when they started making advertisements for the film, like the billboards and the posters and things, all of them were bright red. Mm. And he went to this marketing team who told them that we can't call it John Carter of it's, Mars because Mars were, doesn't sell. They were sell. ugly billboards, too. Oh, they were yeah. not great. He was like, he went to the marketing team and it's just like, who said we couldn't call it John Carter of Mars because Mars doesn't sell. And he was like, why are all these things bright red? And they're like, so people will know it's on Mars. Well, we, we were going to call it Mars. We were going to call it the Mars thing. And you said we couldn't because Mars was bad and at... When you're working for a giant studio, even a one that tends to make quality product or successful product, there's still, always it's bullshit. Their, it's still their product. There's always yeah. bullshit. There's always stuff that gets in your way. Mm. And there's always things that happen that are outside of your control. Mm. When the movie started getting really expensive, the narrative in the trades was, can anything save John Carter? And no one was talking about whether or not the movie was good. And I finally saw the movie at this pressure, and I'm like... I like right. this movie. It's all right. Yeah, it's not amazing, but I like this movie. Yeah. There's a lot to really enjoy in I, this movie. This is a I, very good time at the movies. The first time I watched it, I thought, no, this is a little bloated. Second time I watched it, I appreciated it a lot more. And now I've seen it three times. And the third time, I've like back down again a little bit. It's like, yeah. oh, no, actually, this is still pretty bloated. It, I understand why people didn't flock to John Carter. It, it's not a timeless classic. I don't think it's going to be one of those movies that is eventually hailed as one of the great sci-fi mm. films. However, I do know that when people finally do sit down and watch this thing, they tend to like it. They tend to just say to themselves, well, that was okay. Mm. What the hell was everyone's problem? Like, it's not like Waterworld, where it's just this really generic Mad Max knockoff that happens to be on but jet the, skis. The, like that's, it's, but again, that it's like, that's okay. It's illogical, it's kind of dumb, yeah, but it's I, entertaining. I think John Carter's better than Waterworld, but like mm. it's another one where you will finally watch it and you're just like, the fuck's everyone's problem? This movie's fine. <laughs> like, it's not as good as Star Wars. Few movies are. Mm. 
Mm. Well, and it's it's that thing where uh, it, it's also just something communicated visually. Yeah. If you see a lot of money on screen, if you see these really impressive uh, visual effects, you're going to want it to also feel like it is grand and connecting to something even bigger, whether it's a franchise or just in, like something uh, classical. Yeah. I think uh, John you Carter of like Mars... like an amusement park ride. Was it worth waiting in line? Was yeah, it worth yeah, the cover it, charge? It needs to be like really exciting, really visually interesting, yeah. or feel, feels kind of standardly epic. And uh, John Carter doesn't have that quality. It, it actually kind of cuts itself off the, the knees a lot. Uh, there's a scene early on where... Uh, John Carter is trying to explain to a Martian monster uh, his name. He says, I'm yeah. John Carter, and I come from Virginia. And the the only word that the alien hears is the word Virginia, and everybody starts calling him Virginia, and that's played for laughs. That's vaguely that's funny. Vaguely, but this this weird sort of dumb, quote, emasculation joke that they're giving to the hero, it's it's bad humor. It's not that funny, and it's no, not, not really well put in this scenario where he's actually supposed to be feeling really threatened and being opened up to this world of wonder, yeah. wonderment and strangeness. It, under, it undercuts the, it, yeah. uh, the humor undercuts the film. I'll grant you. Exactly. That, so, so they're trying to be kind of funny and hip uh, a little too hard. Yeah. And, and that's something that's actually damaging to the film. I agree. Uh, yeah. I think what par, part of it is just sort of bad marketing. Part of it is not great filmmaking. And, but yeah, the biggest part of it is that it came in the wake of star Wars and it didn't yeah. feel like it was connecting to something special and classical in the way star Wars did. Yeah. Star Wars built upon John mm-hmm. Carter so that when you finally see John Carter, all you, it's, it's difficult not to just see the skeleton of star Wars, yeah. well, which is sturdy, one of, but one it's of the, just a skeleton. Yeah, one of the grand things I like about the first star Wars is that it does feel like it's connecting to these longer, older cinematic traditions. Yeah. All the sequels only connect back to star Wars. I feel like, uh, star- I think that's not fair. I think there's. I definitely don't think that. I mean, look, okay, at, look, like the, at, look the, at this whole podcast we're doing. Okay, you're, you're you're right. The, uh, the 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 holiday special extends into Circus of the Stars. Agreed. But, uh, oh, we should have uh, done that. We should have had Circus of the Stars. <laughs> we have an episode devoted to Circus oh of the God. Stars specifically we for the holiday special. That. We are not doing that. No, because I am not fucking watching Circus of the Stars. That is TV at its nadir. Oh well, no, Star Wars, the, hol- the Star Wars Holiday Special is TV and it's Nate It's here, literally but... maybe one of the worst things I've ever seen. Like, yeah. things. And, and here, here's the... <laughs> like, cur- not just Star Wars, yeah. things. Here's the, here's the curious thing. It's the Star Wars film I've seen the most. Oh, I, so I, I've seen that one like four or five times, which is uh, more than any, uh, any of the other Star Wars films. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, John... Uh, John Carter, in making this film in 2012, didn't... I don't know why that sort of classical type of adventure storytelling was just out of date. Because they tried to make it feel like really kind of modern and hip, rather than making it feel like this ancient, long-form story that was going to stretch over over this this ancient uh, pulp storytelling tradition. They tried to make it feel like they're launching a brand new film franchise that young people can get in on. I mean, that's definitely part of it. I also think that one of the things that the movie... I feel like the movie is stuck with it, but they shy away from it as much as they can, is the idea that the hero of their film fought for the side of the Civil War that wanted to preserve the institution of slavery. Yeah, he was a Confederate soldier. And as a result of that, and then and in the wake of the Civil War, there was a, a, a definite movement to portray confederate soldiers as these sort of uh, bold lost heroes yeah yeah yeah, like and and we've seen that in in stuff we've covered here like the searchers and 
I feel like Andrew Stanton is conscious enough of all the baggage that comes along with that that you can't quite sell John Carter as this great hero without mm. giving him uh, uh, w- without giving like a pass to that. And I yeah. think an attempt they could is have made, just altered the story and made him a Union soldier. They could have. I think people, some people might have called foul, but I also don't care. I think I would have mm. been fine with it. But like. In any case, they made the de- their decisions, and they tried to focus on making him this like conscientious objector to the idea of war itself, which mm-hmm. is, in some respects, saying that like he realizes that the war was bad and that was a bad idea, mm-hmm. and but as a result, you don't get that sort of heroic yeah. Herculean Greek adventure of someone just exactly. going up ha ha into battle, or even mm-hmm. in Star Wars, where you have this young farm boy who dreams of leaving his small life and going off on a grand adventure. Here is a guy who has had his adventure; it was fucking terrible, and he's done with it. Mm. And that sets the story off on a different kind of path. It actually feels which is a kind fine, of modern, a, a fine place to start a story. It's actually but, yeah. not bad, but like when you place it in this grand sort of pulp adventure mm-hmm. thing it actually kind of undermines that sort of well, grand tradition of heroic storytelling that you're you, speaking of you, you say it's really modern and they did take a very modern approach but there's mm-hmm. also an approach to this where it looks more like ulysses journey mm-hmm. who is also you know fleeing wars okay. uh, if, if you made it into something more like the odyssey okay uh, i can see that. that then it does have these classical traditions that it could really really draw on going as far back as thousands of years yeah uh, I, I buy that. But yeah, Sorry. I think they were going a little too modern. They were going a little too hip. And they were trying to make something that was based on Star Wars instead of outdoing Star Wars. They had an opportunity here I see, to I, reach back further and extend yeah. into an even larger tradition of this epic storytelling. And they didn't do it. I think the real tragedy mm. is, besides the fact that Len Collins didn't get a big career boost out of this. Yeah, she was in a Wolverine movie as well, but that was that <sighs> was, was considered like role. the bad Wolverine movie. Yeah, she's fine in it, but like mm. it gives her nothing to work with. But mm. like, I feel like the real tragedy, I think the thing that undermined this movie the most is that they approached it as this big epic Entity, and they really should have approached it more as a character-driven story. And I think mm-hmm. if it was more motivated, if John Carter was more motivated by moving forward rather than moving back, if uh, the villain was stronger and created a had actually a bigger connection to mm-hmm. John Carter, yeah, and that might have required some rewriting. I acknowledge this. I'm not an expert on all of the books, but. Uh, I think that would have made the story resonate better. I think people would have liked the story better. I think word of mouth would have been better. And yeah, maybe it wouldn't have made all the money back that it needed to, but it wouldn't go down as one of the biggest bombs in movie history. And at the very least, its reputation would be a little bit more positive. Um, But as it stands, yeah, the movie isn't bad. I'm going to say this right now. It's certainly not nearly as Mm. bad as people would have you believe. It is an entertaining watch. It's on Disney Plus now. You can just click on it. It is is an entertaining film. it's, It's really telling that uh, I, I watched this on on, on Disney Plus. I'm borrowing a friend's Disney Plus. Don't tell anybody. Uh, but uh, as, as soon as the credits started to roll, usually they like shrink the credits down into the corner and show you like another thing you can watch on the mm-hmm. streaming service. And of course, it was Avatar. That was the next <laughs> thing because Avatar and John Carter are pretty much the same. They're very similar. I, I would argue Avatar is the better movie. Uh, I think it has better. I, I know a lot of people aren't really positive. I don't about think Avatar. it's better. I don't think. I think it's a. I think it's a better John Carter movie. Because it's the same story. I, I'm not going to fight yeah. you on that. I'm not going to fight it's, you yeah, on it's that. It's the, the wounded soldier, but it's yeah. a future war now, and uh, he gets to 
ingratiate himself with an alien species, achieve through like, uh-huh. weird looking things that are towering thin monsters that are achieved through motion mm-hmm. capture CGI. I see your point. In this exotic new location and learns to essentially go native. Uh, and, yeah. you know, a lot of people compare it to Dances with Wolves. Very because much it's, so. it's a really similar story to Dances with Wolves. It absolutely is. It's the, but it's also the John Carter story. Now, the, yeah. the, the, the element that's missing from Avatar is uh, the Na'vi aren't at war with another species from Pandora. Yeah, they're just at war with... It's like, it'd be like if the Confederacy was at war with Mars. Yeah. It's kind of what... Um, I, I which, see which, which I think is actually a, maybe a more interesting take. I, th- I agree that it's cleaner. Yeah. I will 100% agree that the storytelling in Avatar is cleaner. I also mm. think it is so clean that it loses a lot of its power. Well, I think... Uh, uh, and it also commits the same sin that John Carter does, and, and it's that the protagonist isn't very interesting. No, I, I 100% yeah. agree. I, uh, I will say this right now. Your parallel is very, very well taken and, and very obvious. I'll also take Deja Thoris over Neytiri any day. Absolutely, yeah, but they are—they awesome. are kind of the same character. No, no, I, I agree. I agree on mm-hmm. all of every single one of those points. I agree. What it boils down to is this: they have different narrative problems. Mm-hmm. What one does well, I think the other one does badly, and vice versa. But at the end of the day, which film have I seen more often? Like because I wanted to, mm. John Carter. John Carter. It, it, it's I've actually had like a desire a, a to watch bit, uh, John Carter. I have never really thought to myself, I kind of just want to sit down and watch Avatar. Again. Like I've <laughs> only after the first a, time I saw uh, it, I've only watched Avatar for work related. Well, and and we also have to admit to ourselves that as as critics, we do tend to uh, gravitate towards scrappy underdogs. Yeah, fil- films happens, that yeah. have maybe bad reputations that we are fond of that because we find ourselves having to champion those films more frequently. Well, I also just think that there is a certain, uh, uh, I think, interesting failures, for lack of a better expression, Mm. uh, excite me more than generic successes. Exactly. And I think Avatar, for all of its ambition visually, from a narrative perspective, isn't very ambitious. And I appreciate that John Carter is at least trying. Mm. It's trying to tell this vast story. It's trying to introduce us to this really incredible wonderful world and in fits and starts it does a really good job of it some character a character no one ever talks about because he's kind of not in the movie very much i love james purefoy in this movie which one is james purefoy he's the guy who's like deja thoris's right hand man and he's the guy who like helps uh john carter escape Hmm. he walks in and he's just like yes i'm here to investigate the prisoner i hear he is very dangerous kidnapping i hear he's very (laughs) dangerous and he must never be trusted what was that kidnapping Oh, for God's sake! And he whips out his own sword and puts it at his own throat and backs into John the, Carter. The, oh no, I'm being scene. kidnapped by John Carter! Uh, and, and something we didn't mention, and, and this is another narrative. Cons- it opens and it ends on Earth, and there's yeah. this whole oh, yeah, there's yeah. this whole like national treasure conceit where uh, there's like a, a un- weird unlock magical unlocking mechanism in John Carter's grave, and it takes place after his death, and we're flashing back. And, Basically, what and, happens and, is John and Carter Rice was Burrows yeah. himself as a character who's reading. Uh, John Carter's story and it's, that's like, that's I think a, it's, compl- it's completely unnecessary. It's, com- it's totally extraneous. You it's, can cut that stuff from the movie. You really can. In fact, you can completely cut it. I, I think quite reasonably you could cut John Carter out of the movie <laughs> and just have it be a story of these warring factions on Mars and have Dejah Thoris be your lead I, character. I think that would be stronger as well. <laughs> but, but, but I will, I will say this right now that the bookend sequence is an attempt to sort of Make the world of John Carter feel like it's part of our world. Oh, the book that you read, you mm. didn't read it. The book that you mm. read is actually like an actual literal, like, I actually I usually hate that conceit in movies where like, mm. and the book we wrote was the movie you just saw. And I'm like, I know it's a story. 
what am I supposed to do with that? I'm, what? I don't <laughs> care. Like, you told the story. John, this is that Edgar story. Edgar Rice Burroughs is going to write these stories. Yeah. What's, what's, fine, I guess. But uh, yeah, it really does. Well, you know what? There's 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 a key. There's the key to your sequel. Mm. Don't you can re you can do another John Carter film. You can recast it entirely and just. But now it's it, just the books. It, it's yeah. It's just the books. Or here's the yeah. real story. Or here's the story I'm going to tell. They like, did like, that kind of like the, the Mad Max thing. Like, they did that in Mummy Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. Oh, yeah, they, where there was uh, this, Rick was, like, the star of his own pulp adventure. Well, sort of. Right? So what happens is, if you recall in the first two Mummy movies, uh, you had um, Rick and... Um, oh, what was the name? What was uh, uh, Rachel Evie. Weiss's name? Was it Evie? Evie, yeah. yeah. Rick, uh, uh, Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weiss, uh, you know, go off on these series of adventures fighting mummies. And um, at the beginning of the third film, which was directed by Rob Cohen and uh, had recast... Maria Bello in the Rachel Weiss role because she couldn't come back for one reason or another. I love um, Maria Bello. She's great. I, I think Rachel Weiss is kind of better for that character, but well, like she invented she, the character. She invented yeah. the character. It helps, but like Maria Bello's fine. Um, I, I like her as an actor. That's for sure. But they actually do a fun thing at the beginning where we find out that uh, Evie has been writing their adventures as a series of pulp books. And at the beginning of the story, at the beginning of the film, she's giving a reading at a bookstore, and a bunch of people are listening to her read the story about like what happened with Emotep and all the mummy stories. And someone was just like, uh, is everything that happened in this book completely accurate? And then we cut to not Rachel Weiss, and Maria Bella just says, yeah, we changed some things. <laughs> Which, <laughs> cute reveal. It's yeah. really clever, but it also kind of states that maybe Tomb of the Dragon Emperor isn't canon. Mm. So it gives you like that little bit of out <laughs> like if you want to change some stuff, which is not unclever. Uh, yeah, I, it's I, a bad yeah, movie, I, like I argue, that, yeah. but like it's it, that's a clever opening, and I was with it for about ten minutes. Okay, and then pff, boy, did that movie just go off the rails? That does not work. Um, but anyway, I did, that's I did like the scene where the Yetis give each other FBI hand signals. <laughs> They do. Yeah, they're, they're, they they stumble they into really like a, they stumble into a Yeti city. A bunch of Yetis like yeah. come up to the border of the city and they go rah, 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 and they like tap two fingers yeah. on their forearm, like they're signaling like, for point, a bunt. point to their eyes and you know, point across the walls. Yeah, <laughs> hold up their hand, like hold up their hand and then close their fist to like signal the people behind them, just like you see in the FBI movie. Which is which is funny. Um, mm. But anyway, that's John Carter. Um, mm. Interesting film. Interesting legacy. Uh, a lot of books out there that are readily available, and of course the movie is available on Disney Plus and on home video. Um, and uh, I do recommend it. It's just it's no Star Wars. Um, mm. So there you go. That's something that inspired Star Wars, which then went on to inspire the thing that inspired Star Wars. Weird. Because um, uh, we reached the point where Star Wars was echoing itself, and here's somebody yeah. trying to get into the echo chamber. Yeah. Uh, coming up next on Episode Zero, we're going right back to the silent era. Uh, to talk about a film that had a big impact on The Last Jedi in particular, but I think you can find a lot of traditions, particularly in stories of war, uh, that would connect to the entire Star Wars series. We're talking about the first film to win the Academy Award for Best Picture, Wings. Have you seen Wings? It's real good. It's actually really good. Mm -hmm. Like people don't people talk about it as just like, oh yeah, it's the one silent movie that won Best Picture besides The Artist, which isn't really silent, but like. It's like that one. It's like mm. that's kind of its novelty. It was the first Best Picture winner. Actually, if we're going to go into detail, there were two Best Picture yeah, winners. There was also the Sunrise that, that same yeah. year. But the yeah. first Academy Awards, they had two awards for Best Picture. One was Best Production, which was kind of the big Hollywood movie award. But then they also had an award for Best Unique and Artistic Picture, mm. which they decided that was a distinction. And they were considered equal awards the first year. But so then, there was, then they dropped that category, the second Academy Award. And retroactively, they decided that Wings functionally won the first Best Picture. Mm. 
Hmm. But technically, was there were Sun, two. But Sunrise any, also won. Yeah. But in any case, Wings was the film that is that bears the distinction of the first Best Picture winner. It is a World War One flying ace movie, hmm. uh, starring Clara Bow, and um, it's really fucking good. And I, I, we watched it like only like two years ago for another podcast. Hmm. And I'm eager to rewatch it again because it's a lot of fun. So we'll be talking about that on the next episode of Episode Zero. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you want to talk about anything we discussed on this show, uh, feel free to drop us an email, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And uh, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash network, without which we could not keep doing these podcasts. So a very special thank you to all of our patrons. If you want to join up at Critically Acclaimed. Uh, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network uh, you can get a ton of exclusive content we got a lot of stuff on there you got all of our back episodes uh, yep. f- uh, for whatever tier you're subscribed in yep uh, commentary yeah. tracks uh, podcasts about Oscar movies podcasts about uh, Star Trek podcasts about Firefly podcasts about TV movies podcasts about uh, Disney movies that are not on Disney Plus but should be um, and plenty of other stuff besides you also get access to Whitney's various radio dramas that's right I have uh, put three up on there now my third one it's called Determined uh, just dropped well yep. last week and uh, it's a mysterious drama about a uh, three people who are digging through a dead companion's apartment and find an old video cassette and find that uh, the dead companion could predict the future and has conversations with them via the video cassette. And yeah. she asks them to avenge her death. And off goes the drama. And if you're a member of our Patreon at our top tier, you get that at no additional cost. However, if you just want to listen to that radio drama, find Whitney on social media, send him a message, and uh, he will arrange... Uh, for yeah, payment through PayPal or Venmo, and you can uh, get that in an MP3 uh, somewhere. My uh, my DMs are open. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah, just send me a direct message. Uh, send me your email. Yeah, we can arrange payment, and I'll just email you an MP3 of any one of those radio shows. If you want all three, we can make a deal. Yep. Uh, and uh, and again, we'll be back next uh, next time in episode zero with wings. So thank you everybody for listening, and may the force be with you and you and you and especially. Yes, Virginia, there is a Star Wars.